0: Well, today was chosen as the day of prayer for our denomination because on May 19th of 1973, 50 years ago, a convocation was held at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And from that convocation became what we now know as the PCA. And so a day of prayer was called to commemorate Uh, the Lord's faithfulness in establishing this denomination on that day. So the goal for this day was that there should be 24 hours of continuous prayer from midnight last night to midnight tonight. And so announcements were made, multiple announcements, messages sent out in multiple sources, and a link was provided You could click on that link and you could sign up for one of 96 15-minute time slots. Now, every time slot could accommodate unlimited prayers. So as many people as wanted to sign up could sign up. The last time I checked the website, which was yesterday, a little before noon, two time slots remained completely empty. Fifty-three, over half of those time slots, had only one prayer. And sometimes that single prayer signed up for multiple consecutive time slots. The slot with the most participants numbered six. Now, this is a denomination of almost 2,000 churches, and almost 400,000 members. I'm not condemning right now. In any way, I'm only observing. So you can't make too much of these statistics, but neither should we make too little of them. Maybe the lack of enthusiasm for prayer is just a reflection of technology fatigue people just didn't open the email or if they went to the website and clicked the link they just didn't bother to show up but then on the other hand what if it does indicate something to us if a day of prayer that's called for once every 50 years doesn't get much attention it might reflect something about our attitude toward prayer not what we say we believe about prayer, but actually praying. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress," wrote, "You can never do more than pray after you excuse me you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed." And yet it isn't easy, is it? Martin Lloyd-Jones said that nothing tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. I've been preaching long enough now to know that when it's discovered that prayer is the topic of a sermon, this collective sigh sweeps over the congregation like a wave. The guilt sets in. Probably because none of us believe we pray as much as we ought to pray. We often don't pray at all. And we know we ought to do better. We're on the same page with that. This is how I feel when someone talks about prayer. But here's our great hope this morning. That God is a transforming God and He is making all things new, and that includes our attitude toward prayer and our practice of prayer. So, what was in the past, especially about prayer, it's not what's important. What will be, what will be in our devotion to prayer is what's important. You and I must call on God often in prayer. Prayers are Great hope, it's our sure hope until we make it home. So this morning we're going to talk about prayer as we return once again to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you have your Bibles with you, I ask you to open them to that place, First Peter chapter 1. And when you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. First Peter chapter one, beginning in verse seventeen, this is the word of the Lord. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we talk about prayer now, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of your word, that you would turn us in to a praying people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's because of those statistics that I just mentioned that I wanted to circle back again this morning to verse 17. We looked at it last week, but we didn't have much time for this little phrase in verse 17, which is this, if you call on Him as Father. You see, calling on Him as Father simply means to pray. When I was growing up, some of the really old people— People who were born and grew up before there were telephones used to say this. Well, I'm going to call on Mrs. Jones this afternoon. And by that, they just meant that they were going to go pay a visit to Mrs. Jones in her home. Back then, sometimes people left calling cards. Just a little card requesting a time when you might meet with that person. And so that's what prayer is. Prayer is calling on God. It's you and me paying God a visit in his throne room. Now, last week I was very careful to explain that this conditional word, if, in verse 7, if you call on him, did not indicate the possibility that they might not call on God. Instead, the word indicates the reality of a long-standing prayer practice and could therefore be better translated since, since you call on him. Peter assumes prayer is the practice of every devoted disciple of Christ. Calling on God as father, that is the normal Christian life. I think the opposite would have been absolutely unthinkable for Peter. He would not have the ability to grasp it, that there could be such a thing as a Christian who did not have a long-standing, repeated practice of calling on the Father in prayer. Martin Luther wrote, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible Than to be alive without breathing. Peter assumes the calling on the Lord in prayer was a vital part of the daily lives of these believers. It had to be. Listen, these Christians had no religious liberty, they had no protection under the law, they had no First Amendment saying the emperor shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or the right of the people peaceably to assemble. They didn't have any such rights. But what did they have? They had prayer. They could, and they did, call on their Father in heaven, even when their meetings went subterranean, where they met In the catacombs. They called on God. In prayer. Because they needed his power. That comes through prayer. To remain resolute. And unmoving. And unshaken. In their faith. They called on God in prayer. Because they needed his wisdom. That comes through prayer. To know truth. And to not mix the pure faith of Christ with the vain philosophies of the world, or as Peter describes him in verse 16, passions of former ignorance, futile thinking, or to dilute their faith in order to make it just a little more palatable to the world, not too strong to the taste of their culture, and thereby relieve some of the pressure coming toward them. They called on the Father because they needed courage that comes from prayer. Not to cave in. Not to say, well, it doesn't really matter. Well, they're not hurting anyone. Well, what's the big deal? They needed his comfort that comes from prayer when they would not compromise their faith. And when they were abused and persecuted. And suffered for it. They prayed. And you and I must pray. Because Christianity, our faith, in its pure form, is extreme. It's not exclusive. It's open to anyone who will profess faith in Christ. And yet it is extreme. That's the nature of our faith. Because... There is only one true and living God. There is only one way to that God through faith in Jesus Christ who is the way. The extremity of our faith is what causes the world to rail against it. You shall not tell me what I shall believe. You shall not tell me your way is the only way. And yet, one God, Created everything, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He is the one unique mind, God's is, that conceived the entirety and the complexity of the universe and it is his one voice that spoke it into being. It's his unique image in which men and women are created Psalm 89 says, The heavens are yours, the earth is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. God owns it all. And God has proclaimed that he will not share his glory with another. Why? Because God is selfish? Because he's stingy? Because he's intimidated by someone else? No. It's because he alone knows What was and what is and what is to come. God alone knows how all things work together for our good and for his glory. Because he is the glorious one. And so why? Should God share his glory with those who don't have any of his knowledge. Who have none of his power. Who have no rightful ownership over what belongs to God. See, these early devoted disciples got this. And that's why they would not compromise. They would not syncretize, mix a little bit of the world with their faith. And for that reason, they had to call on God in prayer, make it their long-standing and repeated practice. I've quoted many times before. Oswald, Oswald Chambers says, "Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work." And these early believers knew that. And it was in these early days of prayer, and these early days of suffering, and these early days of persecution, that the church spread like wild fire. Was it because these believers were dependent on prayer? Was it because that these early believers knew that when they prayed, they would see the face of God? That's a possibility, you know? We read it this morning already from David, in Psalm 27, "One thing I've asked of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. David isn't referring to heaven here. He's referring to his life on earth, all the days of his life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. He continues, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. And then finally he writes, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Again, David is not praying about heaven. He's praying about seeing the beauty of the Lord in this life. He's asking to see the face of God in this life. Through prayer. And so these believers to whom Peter wrote both needed and wanted the same thing. If I could take just a moment and explain how it is that I got this connection between prayer and seeing the face of God. You'll allow it, won't you? Look in verse 17. You see there this description of God the Father who judges, and then you see that word impartially. Well, it's that word impartial that triggered this connection between prayer and seeing the face of God. Now, Peter's the only writer of the New Testament to use this word, and it appears only here. And the root word that Peter uses is partial, and in classical Greek of Peter's day, the word meant face, that which struck the eye, that's what which one looks at. In secular Greek, it meant face. It was what was facing the one who was looking. The same word in the Old Testament is used almost exclusively for the face of God that's why the psalmist pleads with god do not turn your face from me and that's why the best word the greatest blessing the best benediction is to pray that the face of the lord would shine upon you now obviously in this context peter uses the word in the negative that god is Impartial, not partial. And he simply means that when we call on God in prayer, God does not look at our face. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you look like when you call on Him. He doesn't accept you into His presence for any of those reasons. And so you and I could say, in this case, that God is blind. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. It doesn't mean that God cannot see our face. It simply means that when we are calling on God through faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter what your face looks like. Please tell me that's good news. Is that good news? It's almost incomprehensible to us who live in an appearance-obsessed culture. It seems to us that the most beautiful have the easiest time in this world, but not with God. And so this truth should take away any barrier, if it exists, for any one of us to pray. That God won't accept us. No, He will. That God prefers. He does not. He will not show more of His face to me. And less of it to you because of who you are. And then I'll add this image as well. This word that Peter uses. It's based on the Middle Eastern practice of a respectful greeting. It worked this way in that culture. The one doing the calling would turn his or her face to the ground. Or sink down, face down to the ground. And then it was up to the one being greeted to lift up the face of the one doing the calling. And by so lifting up the face, that person said, I recognize you, I esteem you, I welcome you. And so now we're ready to pray, aren't we? Because we know that in prayer, God will lift up our faces and reveal his face to us. Does that make you want to pray? In prayer, God will show us Christ our Savior. This puts 2 Corinthians 4 to such a glorious setting. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This gives prayer for you and for me, this unlimited aim of seeing God's face. We remember that Moses glowed when he was in the presence of God, and that glow came only from Moses seeing the outer bands, of the glory of God. Moses didn't see God face to face, and yet he still glowed. And then we come to the New Testament. After Jesus had ascended and returned to his Father in heaven, when he was no longer physically present with his disciples, they prayed. That's what the disciples were doing in that upper room on the day of Pentecost. They were praying in that upper room because in that room they were seeking to see the face of Jesus. Prayer was how they connected to him through the power of the Holy Spirit. So one day, Peter and John are going to the temple. There's a lame man there. They heal that lame man. It upsets the religious leaders of the day. And so they're hauled in before the Jewish High Council, what we would call the Supreme Court of the Jewish world. And when Peter and John stood before this council, the council saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. They were astonished. By what Peter and John looked like, how they appeared, they were impressed. It caused them to wonder, it caused them to marvel. It's the same word that's used in the New Testament to describe the reaction when Jesus said to the wind and the waves, shh, be still. People were astonished. Being in the presence of Jesus, now only through prayer, put a distinguishing mark Upon Peter and John. And so whether it's Moses or Peter and John, you can tell when someone has called on their father, been in his presence, seen his face. That possibility about prayer excites me, inspires me to pray, and it sets me free Allowing God to determine what it is I will see. I think we mechanize prayer too much. How to pray too much. Dutify prayer too much. Listen, I've been a prayer for long enough to know the struggles. An unseen God. A mind that scatters and wonders and can't focus. A struggle for words. No audible voice. No clear answers sometimes. We wonder what we're doing. We wonder why we're doing it. Well, I'll tell you what we're doing. We are just calling on our Father. That's it. Spirit to spirit. You see, we attempt to control too much. The words, the thoughts, in prayer. Listen to Romans 8, and you know this well. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with the will of God. In Galatians 4, 6, Because you are sons and because you are daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I'm not trying to get all mystical on you or Promoting some sort of a trance like state. I'm just saying call on God. Show up for a visit with Him. Doesn't require a pep talk to get your mind in the game. It doesn't require finding just the right formula. It doesn't require waiting until you think your faith is strong enough. It doesn't require us finding just the right eloquent words or the right lofty thoughts. Just call on Him as Father. Spirit to Spirit. Our spirits, indwelled and molded by the Holy Spirit, connecting us to our Father who art in heaven. If you wait till you have God, all figured out. If you wait to have all your questions answered, you're never going to pray. If you wait till all your doubts are removed about God, or about God's word, or about God's promises, you're never going to pray. If you hesitate to pray because you fear you will not get your way, your wish, your want, then you're not going to pray. Set aside your way for what God's way might be for the mark that he will put on you for the way in which he will make you glow in so many ways prayer is simply self-surrender it isn't our working out everything in our minds telling God okay God I've figured out now how this is going to go down no Surrender, release, calling on God with a longing to see the face of Christ with an anticipation of what he will show you, of how what you see will change you and inspire you and equip you. The world needs for you and me to be prayers, We need to be prayers in order to make it through this world. And so let me close with this. These believers, to whom Peter writes, were the proverbial pebble in the shoe of their culture. They were the grain of irritating sand in the eye of what their culture had its sight set on. And in spite of that, and all the heartache that came from that, they still grew in Christ. They were renewed by Him, empowered by Him, and the church was flourishing, and the gospel went forth. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians. You receive the word of much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. What? Joy and affliction together? Yes. So that you became an example to all the believers of Macedonia and Achaia. You became an example to all the, uh, for, for, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. You and I, we're that same pebble in our culture's shoe. We're that same grain of sand, so we need to pray. We need to pray that it can be written of us, what was written to the Thessalonians. We need to not have it said about us if you call on the name of the Lord, but may it always be said about us as individuals and as a church since we call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do call on your name now. You know the struggles surrounding Prayer. You also know the power of it. You know why prayer and prayerlessness is often the most effective tool of our enemy. To discourage us so we don't pray. To make us misunderstand prayer, so we don't pray. To make us think prayer is powerless, so we don't pray. Father, if we could glow this morning in one way of our choice, it would be that you would mark us, show us the power of prayer and that you would turn us into praying people not only for our own souls and our own sake, but for the sake of this world in which you have placed us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.